2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. It's located on page 965 of your pew Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Good morning. My name is Philip Bramson. I am a friend of Mike's, and uh, I've been in ministry in Louisville for about a decade, and it is my joy and privilege to come and share with you a, a text that um, has meant a lot to me personally. Uh, I have preached before at uh, the church where I serve, and um, I, I just look forward to sharing it with you. All the handouts are out, right? Okay. <laughs> you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That is on page 964 of a typical Pew Bible, ESV Pew Bible. It's also on your handout if you have the handout, although we'll go a little bit beyond verses just 3 to 4. Amos, Amos Parnell Bailey was a Christian author and pastor, and he talks about visiting an orange grove presumably Florida, who knows, where an irrigation pump had broken down. And because the irrigation pump had broken down and the season was unusually dry, the trees, these valuable trees that farmers had invested in, were beginning to die. And after seeing these trees, the man said, let me take you to my orange grove. And he took into his own orange grove, his own orchard, where the irrigation was used sparingly historically. And the tour guide said, these trees could go without rain in this dry weather for another two weeks. You see, when they were young, I frequently kept water from them. And this hardship caused them to send down roots more deeply into the soil in search of moisture. And now my trees are the deepest rooted trees in this area. And while the others are being scorched by the sun, my trees, my trees find moisture. And there's a real parallel to the Christian life there. 
You know, you might know that when a plant or a tree is young, it is possible to overwater it. And if you do that, its roots will be near the surface. surface. If you water frequently but not deeply, its roots will be near the surface. And what you have done is grown a fragile plant. And a Christian who has an easy, comfortable life is a lot like an overwatered tree or plant. But there is a different, truer, deeper source of sustenance for a, tree, a Christian beyond comfort and ease. Affliction or suffering drives our roots deeply into Christ. And through affliction, we learn to drink from deep truths of the gospel. We learn to sustain ourselves in the deep, moist soil of God's grace. When we've driven our roots deeply into Christ, we are then better equipped to show other people, other believers, other trees in God's orchard, where they can find sustenance. Let's read our text together. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 7. I know we just read it. I like to read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let's pray. Lord, this topic is not our favorite topic. I pray that you give us open hearts and open minds to receive the rich truths of your scripture. There's a bunch of interconnected pieces in this text. We'll be focusing on verses three to four. We'll primarily learn that um, God allows us to suffer so that he can comfort us so that we can truly comfort others. And it's difficult to narrow our focus on suffering. All of us have feelings and thoughts on suffering, and suffering sprouts questions. Some of you, though, have not faced significant suffering. So you come to this text having seen other people suffered and just hoped it never happened to you. Some of you have suffered significantly in your lives, but you've had the habit of boxing that suffering up, which I know is heavy and painful, and stuffing it in a cupboard marked don't look. Some of you, like me in the past, are fairly annoyed that the New Testament frequently insists that you are going to be persecuted for your faith. Some of you open your Bibles to the book of Psalms and you just don't know why it's so full of this raw grief and anger. I come to this sermon as one who has suffered. I don't come to this just as a student of scripture or a preacher. I have depended for my sustenance on this text. I've had little stuff I have a disability in my hands, which has slowly gotten better, but kind of ruined my experience when I was getting my master's of engineering. I have a pathetic digestive system. Long story. I have kids. I have five kids. One, my daughter is with me. Um, 
Uh, I have five kids, I, I, I suffer. <laughs> and I served a, a tiny church, um, which is not a walk in the park. I've also experienced very significant raw suffering. When we were pregnant with my second child, Autumn, uh, we learned at the 20-week ultrasound that my daughter had a, a birth defect. And so the organs that should be below the diaphragm were up here with her lungs. And that means that she you know, is, is in a very precarious position as soon as she is born. And that pregnancy was a roller coaster, but really the pregnancy was just the part of the roller coaster where you ride up to the very top, and then you're released. And my daughter nearly died when she was born, and then she nearly died again, and she spent months in the NICU. Then she was in and out of the hospital for her first couple years of life, although things seemed to be getting better. Then when she had turned two, she went in for a somewhat routine for her um, heart catheterization, and we didn't know she had caught a respiratory virus, kind of like RSV or COVID, and I watched as she again nearly died. And then she was in the PICU for months. And we were told many times that she was not going to make it. But God was very good to us. And he sent her home with us, but on a ventilator. And so we cared for my daughter for two years on a ventilator. While trying to love my family and be a pastor, I'm caring for my daughter. And then after two years with my three-year-old and four-year-old daughter, when she was nearly five, she was declining. And we took her to the hospital in Cincinnati, the children's hospital there, and kind of suddenly, although I guess not at all suddenly, um, she died. She passed away. And my daughter, whom I loved very much, is buried in Cave Hill Cemetery. I do not come to suffering in a neutral way, and none of you actually do either. But God in his wisdom says a lot about suffering in his word, a lot. And although we may want to avoid suffering, there's times when I can't think or talk about my daughter. Um, and there are times when I can handle the complex emotions that are there. Although we might recoil, although we might, might be unsure of what to do, God in his goodness guides us in scripture with his teaching on suffering. And in this text today, Paul's response to suffering is really different. It's intriguing. He, he starts by praising God. You know how much Paul suffered, right? A ton. And it's like he's saying, I love my bad back. Thank goodness I have heart disease. So I want us to turn to Paul's instruction and understand why he can praise God for his suffering. The first point here is praise God from whom all comfort flows. Praise God from whom all comfort flows. Paul's a really organized person, and he's discussing suffering with the Corinthian church because the fact that he himself suffers is entangled in his relationship with the Corinthian church. And some people in Corinth are basically embarrassed by the fact that Paul suffers so much. And so he's addressing suffering with them. And when he thinks about suffering and he dwells on it and he, and he comes up with his summary statement, he starts by saying, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, praise God for comforting me in affliction. Now, if you do skim ahead in 2 Corinthians, this presents a puzzle 
And we can't deal with everything about suffering, but I want to deal with a little bit with one of the questions we most logically ask, which is, if God is this God of mercy and comfort, and he is also God, why is he allowing Paul to suffer? I'm not going to answer that completely, um, but yeah, you look at Paul's life, he's got this massive catalog of agony he's experienced, shipwrecked, hunger, beatings, of course, ridicule and his suffering with the church in Corinth right now, they're like betraying him to some degree. So God, why not be God and both bring me comfort while showing me mercy, remove all this suffering and I would be comforted and I would praise you. That is what we would like and what we would expect. But part of the reason we might think that is because when Paul says comfort in this verse, it's not the same thing that we mean by comfort. We think cozy comfort, warm, comfortable comfort. Paul does not mean cozy comfort. When we think comfort, we think things like comfort food or comfort care. Comfort food is, you know, the tasty, you know what comfort food is, the tasty delicious food that is almost invariably bad for yourself, bad for you. Um, mac and cheese. Adults are allowed to eat mac and cheese now. Did you know that? For me, it's the Vietnamese dish called pho, which is a bowl of warm broth, basically hypertension in a big bowl, and lots of little tasty pieces of meat in there, and I load it up with hot sauce so I get the endorphin rush. Comfort food. Comfort care it deals with suffering. Comfort care is when the medical staff shift from trying to uh, preserve life or delay, delay death, and they move to trying to make the patient as comfortable and as pain-free as possible as the patient um, passes away. There's a legitimate place for this use of the word comfort, these ways of thinking of comfort, but this is not what Paul is thinking about. Nor is Paul talking about just whatever makes us feel good. In the classic, The Devil's Dictionary, I recommend it, by the way, it's a classic. The, the comfort is defined as a state of mind produced by contemplation of a neighbor's uneasiness. So Paul could say, why don't you comfort me by dealing with my enemies? But that is not what Paul means by comfort either. Paul is speaking about support from God that sustains you when you might want to give up. Support that lifts your sagging spirit. Something that gives you resolve when you would otherwise be irresolute. Something that gives you emotional stability and a kind of deep, fundamentally sound tranquility in the midst of trial. But it doesn't mean tranquility like a vacation by the lake. Paul is praising God for comforting him, for fortifying him in affliction. This is our first subpoint. By comfort, Paul means that God fortifies us. Paul is praising God for fortifying him in the midst of all of his trials. God doesn't make it so the next time Paul gets on a boat, he won't be worried about it sinking. He fortifies him for his trials. Paul says he was comforted and fortified in all of his trials. 
Now, how exactly does Paul fortify us? We're focusing on verses three to four, but we're going to dip into verse five because it helps us understand what Paul's talking about. Um, Paul's focus in three to seven in, in the full first half of chapter one is on how our comfort enables us to comfort others. But in verse five, he says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. The first half is referring to the fact that he suffers. So Christ suffered to save us and we suffer when we carry the gospel. We, we continue in Christ's sufferings. And the second half is so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. And he's referring to everything he has through Christ. Everything he has through Christ. All of this theology that becomes real in the midst of suffering. And a lot of this stuff you wouldn't be surprised by. He's talking about total forgiveness of sins. The Sunday school was talking, talking about forgiveness. You have been forgiven so you can forgive others. And you know you have no condemnation before God. There's adoption as children of God, so you know you can trust your heavenly Father. You have purpose as God's people, so you know he can use you in the midst of your trials. You have new life, you are regenerate, you are different, so you know that God has made you new and able to sustain, be sustained in trials, and he has made you able. You have the Holy Spirit to complete what you do not have to guide you and to help you and to turn you to scripture where you have a whole bunch of other comfort, which is the truths on the page that God has given you to be there for your soul when you need them. And of course, you have your inheritance, your eternal inheritance kept in heaven for you. When I first preached this text, um, the, the Taliban was taking over Afghanistan. And, and many of us, probably some of you too, were concerned about missionaries and Christians in Afghanistan. But you know what, if the Taliban comes to your door, if you're a Christian in Afghanistan, and they take you, and they, they put you in a prison, and they throw away the key, and you die there, they have not taken your eternal life. These are the kinds of things that fortify Paul in the midst of affliction. So being fortified is not cozy comfort. It is not freedom from pain and anxiety. It is what equips you and alters you to fight on in the faith. My eldest son, Hudson, he's now 11. Last year, he was on a soccer team. And uh, to contribute to the team, he had to build some endurance. We're not a very sporty family, and so his starting point wasn't that great. And I would see him go out in a practice or out in a game, and he would start full of joy and energy. And he's sprinting across the field, and he's even laughing while he does it. Well, it doesn't take very long before he starts to lose some of that energy but he's still excited. And then it fades more, and his joy starts to fade as well. And before long, he's just weary. It might be 15, 20 minutes in the game, but he's weary. He loses the will to pursue the ball. He will no longer run, he will jog, and then no longer jog, he will walk. And then, probably just like me when I was his age, he would stand there, unless the ball got pretty close, he wasn't going to go for it. When his joy turned to hopelessness, it compounded his weariness. Now this year, he's in cross country. My wife wants to toughen him up. <laughs> this year, he's in cross country, and he has given it his all. He has pushed through the weariness you face when you go to your practices. 
And he has strived and he has worked so that when he has gone to his races, he, he has maximized his effort, throwing in everything to reduce his time consistently over the, uh, the season. And when it hurts, he doesn't give up. He doesn't let up when he's drained. Now, cross country is a sport that you cannot participate in without suffering. It's inherent to the sport. And I go to these meets and I see kids who walk the last half of the course. And I see kids who are running to the end, but they are literally bawling. They're crying or they're holding their stomach or they're lipping across the finish line. But running well just entails suffering. There's not another way to do it. And Hudson didn't need to find some sport where he wouldn't need to exert himself. He had to change his response to suffering. And life is a lot more difficult, and the stakes are a lot higher than soccer or cross country. Hudson's life as a whole is really cushy. He's got free food, free lodging, lots of free wisdom, free education, free gifts at Christmas, those are by definition free. And I protect him from suffering. He has this beautiful thing called playtime. It's really foreign to me, but when he's done with his responsibility, which is the part that's foreign to me, he can just do whatever he wants. But he's gonna grow up and stuff is gonna cost money and he's gonna have responsibilities that require effort and suffering. And he's gonna have people who depend on him and there will not be a path through life that doesn't involve suffering. And in much the same way, a Christian cannot grow up and be fully mature and fruitful in a way that doesn't involve suffering. The second point there is, the second subpoint is do not expect a life free of suffering. Do not expect a life free of suffering. At a basic level, I do not want to suffer. I really do not, and, and, and probably nor do you. But there's a problem. Life is full, full to the gills of suffering. Now you may stand up and say, I am an American, and I claim the Declaration of Independence. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's my theology. But if you take that as your like, view of life, you are going to be disappointed. You know, there is a lot about avoiding suffering in scripture. In Proverbs, there's don't do dumb stuff and hurt yourself. Um, a good physician will guide you to avoid lots of suffering, tell you eat right, floss, exercise, go to bed on time. And, and sometimes the right thing to do is to quit what you're doing or um, what you wanted to do. But if you're a human and you're doing the right thing, and you're trying to glorify God with your life, suffering is unavoidable. You're gonna have long, hard days, or months, or years. You might have dreariness that lasts and lasts and lasts, and you feel like that toothpaste tube that's being squeezed to the very end, pulling out all your energy. You might face lack of recognition. You might be lonely. You might be betrayed. You might face injustice. You might have periods of your life or you may have already where problems pile up all at once. And you think, if I just had better whatever finances or I, you know, I wouldn't face this thing where car problems and house problems and weather problems and people disliking the fact that I share the gospel, like all pile up on the same week or month. 
I can guarantee you that you are going to, if you have not already, face issues in your immediate or extended family. Issues like family conflict, divorce, children who don't go the way you raise them. You are going to have health problems. You will. And then you'll have chronic health problems, and then you will die. You might die early, but that's not usually without suffering. But it's more likely that someone you know and love will die early. And if you do live to your 70s, 80s, or 90s, as far as I've been told, that's not really a walk in the park either. My wife tells me she wants to go home early, and she, she's pretty insistent on this. She does not want to make it to old age. I have mixed feelings. Um, and of course, there's external events that just like ruin everything, like the pandemic. And if you keep a balance sheet internally of all these things, you can look at it and feel like this is too costly, it's not fair, it's not reasonable. And I haven't even touched the primary source of your suffering, which according to scripture is your self-inflicted suffering, your struggle with the flesh. If you want to be without suffering, you're going to be disappointed. Now, sometimes Paul gets relief, right? In Philippians 2, he, he says God had mercy on Epaphroditus, who was sick, in part to spare Paul, he says, sorrow upon sorrow. In Acts 18, Paul was in a really sticky situation, and God gives him an encouragement in a vision. And of course, you will one day have all of your suffering removed in heaven. But in general, in this life, Paul has no expectation of freedom from suffering. And he doesn't ask why bad things happen to good people. And he does not hide from suffering. He does not complain. Instead, he gives us reasons why God allows suffering. And he says God gives him the grace, God fortifies him to survive through suffering. There's a couple of verses in Philippians 4 that for me encapsulate and demonstrate this mentality of his. Philippians 4, starting in verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. That means gather up all your anxieties. And in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So you're supposed to take all the things that, that drag on you, the things that are messing up your plans, the things that are a burden for you, or the suffering that comes your way, and you're supposed to gather it up and bring it to God in prayer. But notice he said, with thanksgiving. Now what's strange about that is usually when we say with thanksgiving, we mean thanksgiving is this thing you give to God after you are blessed. But here, Paul says, come with thanksgiving before God has said yes or no to removing the thing that might bring you anxiety. He comes with trust in God because he's deeply rooted in God's grace. So he can come saying, here are my burdens, Lord. You want me to bring them to you. But whether you take them away or not, I am thankful because you are my heavenly father and I am rooted in you and you do sustain me. So God's mercy and comfort are not some sort of spiritual Tylenol. They are what fortify Paul, fortify Paul for the suffering he expects. Point number two there is God comforts and fortifies you so that you can comfort others. God comforts and fortifies you so that you can comfort others. Basically starting in verse four, God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why does God allow us to be afflicted and then comfort us in the affliction instead of just removing the problem? Well, one reason is so that we can comfort others. Just as he does not expect to be free of suffering, he does not expect those he loves, like the church in Corinth, to be free of suffering. I mentioned that there's a difficult relationship between Paul and Corinth, and they're embarrassed that Paul suffers because they expect leaders who look impressive, look like cool dudes, who have everything under control, and if, if Paul looks like a royal mess because he's always falling flat on, flat on his face through the difficulties he faces, they're like, well, that's just not the kind of leader we want to have. We aren't interested in that kind of Christianity. But Paul knows that they will face suffering. And so he is glad that he faces suffering because then he can comfort them when they face suffering. In verse 6, he says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And that is saying um, he is afflicted as he brings the gospel to them and as he cares for them. And then he says, And if we are comforted... If God fortifies me, it is for your comfort, because then I can fortify you, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now, first subpoint here, so 2A, to gain this ability, we must first be afflicted. To gain this ability to comfort us, we must first be afflicted. I have really bad news for you. I'm sorry. You cannot simply study this text and be fully equipped to comfort others. You cannot, just, you cannot study this text and fully understand it unless you suffer. The sermon is not complete until you have depended on this text as you suffer. In verses 8 and on, Paul talks about some instance where he thought he was going to die. He was convinced he was going to die. And he says that when he was convinced he was going to die, he was forced to rely on God who raises the dead. That's really interesting because I guarantee you, before he thought he was going to die, he already preached the resurrection. He already taught it to people. But he says, it wasn't until I thought I was going to die that I completely relied on God who raises the dead. You see how it works? Here's my personal example. Uh, For nine years, I served as pastor in a model where we did rotational preaching. And that meant there'd be two, three guys who would be sharing the pulpit and um, this meant that I preached one, two, or three times in a month, kind of depended upon the season. And that meant that as we would preach through a book of the Bible, I would see the text on suffering in the middle of whatever book it was, and I would watch it come closer to me as we preached through the Bible, and it would become more and more clear that again, I was going to preach on suffering. I being the guy who just, just had trouble with the fact that Psalms had all this raw grief and, and suffering in it. You know, it doesn't matter which book, preaching through John, preaching through 
Acts, it doesn't matter what we're preaching through, I get the text on suffering over and over again. That was God being good to me. And then in part because I kept preaching these texts on suffering, I signed up when I was in seminary, uh, this, is in like, this is in 2012, for a class called Biblical Counseling in Human Crises. I'm like, I gotta understand this better. That was also God's goodness to me. Because two weeks after the beginning of that class, we learned that my daughter, Autumn, we learned this at her 20-week ultrasound, had the birth defect. We learned that her odds of survival after birth were about 80%. We learned it was going to be a very difficult road. And you know, the doctor, she sat with us and he, she tried to comfort us, but that is not what truly comforted me. It was this text that comforted me. I could see that my comfort had a purpose. My affliction had a purpose. It was all those texts I had preached that comforted me. It was going through Dr. Crotraire's class and his words slipping into my very open soul. It was then that I was changed by God's comfort. As I was afflicted. To gain this ability, we have to be afflicted. But then, next subpoint, once fortified, we can comfort and fortify believers in any affliction. Once fortified, we can comfort and fortify believers in any affliction. Let's look at verse 4 again. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Your suffering is valuable in part because through it you learn how to grow your roots deep into Christ. You learn to depend on the good news of the gospel and all that's in it. You learn to depend completely on the promises of your heavenly Father. And you learn to serve Christ persistently when it is not comfortable and when it is costly. What's interesting is this comfort is to some degree transferable to circumstances that aren't as familiar to you. You could look at Paul and say, well, that doesn't make sense. You comfort people in any affliction? Okay, Paul, you've been shipwrecked, but have you experienced a miscarriage? They're different, you know. Or, okay, you thought you were going to die that time and wherever it was, but, I mean, that's not the same thing as chronic depression. Well, he says, to a degree, the comfort he received is applicable to every affliction. Because the source of the comfort, the gospel truths, the grace of God, the dependence on the Holy Spirit and his words, those things are transferable to other afflictions. You can be the orange tree with deep roots that can tell another orange tree, go down, go down. Now, I, yes, don't take this to an extreme. Yes, it helps to gain particular understanding in your particular forms of suffering. I am probably better suited to comfort the parent whose child is in the ICU, right? I've been there. But when you suffer and when you grow your roots deep in Christ, you gain an ability to comfort others, to fortify them as well. So, 
accept suffering. Don't go looking for it. You don't have to do that. That's not the message. Accept it. And then accept the comfort that comes from God. Because then you can be someone who can show others where to look with sincerity and authenticity, and you'll be motivated by God, by the way he has changed you as he brings you through suffering. Do not, please, fold back, sit back, fold back. Do not sit back and fold your arms and grumble and complain because you're enduring trials. Don't just, like, buckle down and try to push through it and get away and move on and box it up and stick it in that cupboard. I suggest a simple technique that, that, that I have to consciously apply to myself. I look at the trial, I catch myself wanting to run away or minimize it or, or, or avoid it, and I think about other believers going to the same trial or a similar trial. And I try to deliberately praise God from whom all comfort flows that he and his wisdom has allowed this and I can trust him and I can learn to depend on him, and then I will be better suited to comfort others. Unlike a tree, you can refuse to suffer. You can get up and scooch away to surface water. But don't. We are meant to be out in the field, the harvest field, where our roots need to be deep. So we can tell other people where to put their roots, and we can produce sweet fruit that will nourish people there. And then, if you grow in this way, you have reason to praise God like Paul did. Praise God from whom all comfort flows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we do not embrace all of the wisdom you put in Scripture about suffering it is hard for us to dwell on, hard for us to handle. But we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to suffer and die for us, and that you gave us words in scripture and examples in scripture of godly suffering and godly sorrow and godly grief and godly persistence. We pray, Lord, you would give us the wisdom that's required to identify those circumstances correctly and then the wisdom to depend on you, that you would enable us to grow more deeply rooted in you through suffering. Because this world has a lot of suffering, and our brothers and sisters in Christ face a lot of suffering, and you use these circumstances to make us a bit better at loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.